Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And tonight, we are going to be discussing combat in Call of Cthulhu. But before we jump into our main topic, um, well, let's start out by saying thank you once again to Frank Delventhal for the goodies he sent us a while back, because one of the goodies that he sent us was a DVD, and just before recording tonight, we finally got a chance to watch it together. And the film in particular, uh, it's a German production, though it is in English, uh, it's called The Shadow of the Unnameable, and it is an adaptation of Lovecraft's story, The Unnameable. And it seems to be a pretty loyal interpretation of the story. I couldn't actually remember the story myself, but I have read it at some point. But looking at the synopsis on Wikipedia, it pretty much follows it letter for letter. Yeah, it's one of those that I read a long, long time ago. And I remember seeing the um, the feature-length adaptation and remembering elements from that more so than the original story. <laughs> Sorry, you talk about reading it a long time ago, Matt. Last time I read it, you hadn't been born. It's still a long time ago for me, okay? <laughs> it's an independent production, you know, made by uh, a German company using some, I think, American actors. They, they certainly sounded American. <laughs> um, and it's got some nice special effects. It uses mm. a combination of, you know, traditional special effects and set dressing and some CGI. I thought the way it was made was quite nice. I quite like the the... the the camera work on the people's faces as they were talking. It wasn't kind of like weirdly leering at odd angles, but there were nice kind of close-ups and the lighting and, and so on. Was, uh, and cool. one thing that particularly impressed me was the makeup effects. Um, I mean, without giving too much away, there's a bit where, you know, we, we see a character sometime later and he's aged. And the age makeup in it was oh, really, really convincing. It also crams quite a bit into those 16 minutes. You've got flashbacks, you've got the story being told within the story, as it were. Mm. Um, and as mentioned, that it does stick pretty faithfully to the original story. You've got a good old Randolph Carter figure in there. You can't go wrong with Randolph Carter. Nah, well, you can if you hang out with him. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say, it, <laughs> that's true. The, the Ask moral, Carly Warren. <laughs> the moral of the story is don't go anywhere near this man. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much your life would be much better for it. But I guess, you know, it's it's a short story and it's a short film and that works. If you try and stretch it out into an hour and a half, it, it can get a bit thin. Yes, thank you again, Frank, for sending us that. That really is one of the better Lovecraftian shorts that I've seen. We'll put a link to it on the show notes and I think it's still available for purchase. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you like your Lovecraftian shorts, go out there and check it out. But now, without further ado... It's time for our Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, it's the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is both a noun and a verb. So I've got two sets of descriptions to give here, although they might cunningly enough be very similar the word in question is burst as a verb to break open or apart suddenly and violently especially as a result of an impact or internal pressure 
or to issue suddenly and uncontrollably. A bit like the amount of gin I put in Scott's cocktails, very suddenly <laughs> and uncontrollably. A burst of gin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> certainly uncontrollable afterwards. <laughs> yeah. And as a noun, an instance of breaking or splitting, told you it sounded familiar, or two, a sudden brief outbreak. Now, this is quite a prosaic word for Lovecraft. It's, it's short, it's impactful, and it's quite commonplace. However, what makes it a Lovecraftian word is, if you read any action sequence in Lovecraft's work, he, at some point he will use the word burst to describe the action. It's just everywhere in his work. I mean, he used it 62 times in his fiction. And, yeah, it's a very, very effective way of just communicating that idea of sudden action. I think so, because when I first saw the word on the list, I thought burst, that sounds a bit mundane. But if you apply it to any um, organic or you know, physical object, they're not supposed to burst. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you do use it as you know something bursting forth from a house or you know, bursting forth from a cellar, it, it does immediately bring to mind uh, action and something that shouldn't really be happening. There's something wrong. It is a word very much I kind of associate with pimples and shoggoths. Um, both of them do burst quite quite admirably. There is an example uh, from his fiction which we didn't use as one of the ones we're about to read, uh, which I think is from the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, where he talks about night gaunts dragging hapless creatures up into the air and then letting them loose to burst upon the ground in rather noisome and, and smelly ways, which I thought was a lovely description. Poor moon beasts. Aww. Bursts 1d3 investigators per turn. (laughs) That's what it should say. Anyway, shall we take a look at how Lovecraft himself used the word burst? From the lurking fear, the thing came abruptly and unannounced. A demon wrapped like scurrying from pits remote and unimaginable. A hellish panting and stifled grunting. And then from that opening beneath the chimney, a burst of multitudinous and leprous life a loathsome night-spawned flood of organic corruption more devastatingly hideous than the blackest conjurations of mortal madness and morbidity. And from the rats in the walls. And, most vivid of all, there was the dramatic epic of the rats, the scampering army of obscene vermin which had burst forth from the castle three months after the tragedy that doomed it to desertion. The lean, filthy, ravenous army, which had swept all before it and devoured fowl, cats, dogs, hogs, sheep, and even two hapless human beings before its fury was spent. And finally, from the Call of Cthulhu. That tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from its eon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. On to tonight's main topic, combat in Call of Cthulhu.
There's been a discussion on combat resolutions or non-combat resolutions of scenarios on yogsothos.com recently. And there was a quote that someone, uh, someone with the username Steve Almost posted, which caught my eye, uh, which was, Call of Cthulhu has a reputation as a thinking man's RPG, where a bunch of professors investigate mysteries, when in practice, as soon as anything weird starts happening, everyone just goes and buys shotguns, and it turns into Ash versus Evil Dead. I resemble that remark, damn it, except with me, it's dynamite. (laughs) It's an interesting point. We talk about Call of Cthulhu being an investigative game, and it is, but at the same time, you know, the shotguns and the dynamite will come out at some stage in most games. Because they're better than a Derringer, to be honest. (laughs) But yeah, Call of Cthulhu has got pages of weapons tables, a whole chapter devoted to combat. A lot of the published scenarios have got fight scenes in them, or, you know, problems that can only be solved through violence. I mean, Lovecraft himself wasn't averse to the occasional fight scene in his uh, in his stories. So, is is combat really that big a part of Call of Cthulhu? Um, and if we're going to accept that it is, how do we make it more interesting? More guns, 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 <laughs> guns. All this and more will be explored in the next forty-five minutes. What is the purpose of combat? Maybe one of the points we should look at is why is there so much combat in role-playing games in general, I would say. Um, And I guess combat is a a core thing because role-playing games heritage comes from war games, which, you know, are simulations of um, battlefield tactics and so on. That kind of got narrowed down into individual uh, characters in a war, in a battle, and then, you know, characters in a dungeon fighting monsters and so on. So our roots very much come from combat mechanics. And indeed, some of those early games, that's pretty much all they had was kind of Mm -hmm. combat rules. Yeah, and Call of Cthulhu comes from a time when games were very much still rooted in that that skirmish wargaming origin. Later on, you know, in more recent years, we've seen a lot more role-playing games where they've attempted to divorce themselves from that and make it much more about creation of fiction and drama at the table and get away from the idea of there being, you know, say, combat systems in the game. But Call of Cthulhu is a product of its time. Yeah, I think the the major way it differs from, like I'd say, D and D and the other the other games of that ilk, is that in a lot of instances, the big iconic monsters in Cthulhu, even the gods and so on, they're not. You don't, humanity doesn't stand a chance against them. It's you walk into a situation, you walk into a combat with those, and it's just how many rolls do you get before you die? Mm. It, if anything, it just gives the illusion that you could, the players can actually win against the mythos. So let, let's take a look at what is the purpose of combat. I guess there's there's two threads here. One is what's the purpose of combat for the player characters themselves, the people in the story, and also, and the second one is perhaps what's the purpose of combat for you know us as people playing a game. What role does it fit in the game? Yeah, and I mean for for the investigators themselves, and the purpose of combat really has to be to achieve some goal. Now, whether it's stopping the big bad from achieving its master plan, whether it's attempting to rescue a loved one who's been kidnapped, get hold of the MacGuffin, at some point there will probably be a situation that they will realise is best or most easily resolved using violence. 
I guess it's, yeah, like you say, it's kind of expediency. We need to get that thing. Okay, well, the easiest way to get it is going to be to kill this guy and take it. Or less ruthlessly, you know, to bang that guy on the head. Or to break into the uh, cult base, knock some cultists out, take their uniforms, sneak in, you know, make sure we got guns with us in case anything goes wrong. So it's 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 a way of kind of shortcutting other approaches. There's sometimes even a degree of frustration that comes into that. I mean, I can think of, for example, one Call of Cthulhu game I played comparatively recently, where there was an NPC I was dealing with, uh, and we were having a comparatively peaceful time, but it was just being so frustrating and gnomic and getting in the way of our plans and so on, that at some point I just thought, fuck it, he's dead. And, yeah, at that point, I just smashed his head in. Let me guess, was this about, like, three and a half minutes into conversation with him? (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) To be fair, it's rare for me to get three and a half minutes into a conversation with anyone without me wanting to cave their head in. (laughs) Well, I think the other things as well that that tend to be drivers for violence in games are are self-defence, because it's not always the player characters on the offensive. I mean, sometimes the investigators are being hunted by, by something and resort to violence to defend themselves against it. And similarly, you know, it just as a means to give themselves a bit of cover or, um, or to create circumstances whereby they can get away, you know, like covering fire or just punching a guard so they can run past or something Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, because often as Keeper we send, you know, some bad guys against them um, and, you know, the bad guys are going to try and mug them, take their stuff... Um, take them captive whatever so self-defense makes yeah makes complete sense there so sort of switching to the other side of the coin what do us as players get out of why do we kind of keep seeking combat in games i would argue that because a well-orchestrated well-run interesting combat can be a lot of fun um, i mean they can be dreadfully dull you know but you know if they're done well they're a way of bringing all the players together if everybody's involved in it, you know, because it's a structured thing, everybody gets a go in the round. Mm. Um, whereas if you've gone to interview somebody and there's maybe there's six players uh, or maybe two players kind of get a lot of the talk and there's no kind of structured thing for the GM to sort of say, okay, it's your go, now it's your go, now it's your go, now it's your go. Whereas in combat, you do get that. So everybody gets an input. Yeah, because there is an entire chapter in the rule book given over to combat. So this gives you an indication from the get-go that combat is expected to be a significant thing. That, you know, when it comes to play, is a major factor in the game. Uh, that it's something that's going to come up often enough that it warrants uh, its own chapter in the game. And the fact that these rules are then fun to engage with probably means that the game is going to be more violent than if you know your combat system in it were just say you know a single opposed role that were over in a few seconds Mm. i think it's an important aspect of the rules because if it goes badly for your character then your playing piece in the game your player character is can be killed can be taken out of the game whereas in if you if i'm trying to fast talk somebody or you know persuade somebody of something or make a library use role i'm not going to die i'm not going to be taken out of the game because of that so this is you know is life and death here 
You know, I suddenly have the urge to write a game where doing a uh, failing a fast talk roll or making a bad library use <laughs> roll is actually a detriment to your character now. I've certainly run Dead of Night game where um, there was a literary criticism roll that ended up being a life or death one. You see, now that's the kind of combat I can get behind rather than <laughs> I swing, I punch, a war of I words. hit. Yeah, exactly. That that. I can well, get I guess behind. you know we've got pushed rolls now, so you can argue that you know if you fail the pushed roll, you know something really bad is going to happen um, in in any kind of instance of a skill roll. Any time I give a description of how pushing works at the table I, uh, for new players, I always use the example of um, the guy getting trying to work his way into the nightclub, and if he fails a bribing check, then he can ending up um, end up in a back alley with a knife in his gut. So yeah, I can quite happily see that. So you push your roll, push rolls can be very much of detriment to your character as well. And I think another use of combat, I mean, this is probably more for the keeper than for the players, is to escalate the sense of horror in the game. That I, not every combat is going to be horrific. Some of them are going to be quite mundane or dull or futile. If you're up against something that is more powerful than you, or if your back is up against the board and you're fighting for survival, um, or if the combat is just weird and bloody and strange and visceral, then it can ramp up that feeling of nastiness and horror. Yeah, I, d- I did. That's one thing, admittedly, that I do. Um, that I do like when it comes to combat scenes, particularly with some of the more, um, with some gods and with some monsters. Uh, recently, in a combat scene, thankfully it was very brief; it only lasted two rounds before pretty much everyone died. Um, was um, Gigolanak getting hold of a player character's head? putting his hands either side of said uh, player's head. And by by the rules, it just says he does 2d6 damage. No, go go for a bit more juicy description in there. No, those hands come down either side of the head. They start to squeeze. You can see the head bulge. And when it comes away, it's just taken the, um, taken the ears and most of the flesh off both sides of the head with it. Nice. So you have poor yeah. investigator with a somewhat flattened head and blood running down on both, si- both sides. Because what does he have on his hands, Scott? Orifices. <laughs> but I would say I'd challenge that a little bit, Scott, about it increasing horror. I guess sometimes, yes, but I think that's largely in the keeper's domain to bring mm. the horror to combat. Yeah. If it's uh, if the keeper's NPCs are of a more mundane nature, then I don't think it is often very horrific. It's more often it's just um, you know it's kind of action and drama. Yeah. No, I think actually, you know, we'll cover this, I think, a bit more in the next session. The the counterpoint to that is, I think, in certain circumstances, it can certainly diffuse the horror as well. What could work better in combat and why? I think the very worst combats that I've played in games are the ones that are just mechanical, rote, dull mm-hmm. exercises and rolling dice. And that take forever as well. Yeah. I remember sitting around in a bar at a convention a while back talking to Gregor Hutton, who was working on a game. I don't think he ever released it, but um, it was called The Number Reducers. And the idea was that um, you you had target numbers and uh, you were sitting there rolling a D20. And if you hit your target number, you get to roll another number and then you reduce someone else's number. And, you know, the whole purpose of the game was never to give any narration with any of this. So, you know, it's just roll, right, I got an 18. All right, well, you can roll to reduce the number then. All right, I'll reduce the number. It goes down by three. Right. And it was back and forth like that. <laughs> and uh, 
I have played games which felt just like that. Yeah, I guess we all have, sadly. Um, but that, that's the kind of the lower end of it. Um, at the upper end, it's, it's a lot more fun. But I think that feeling of it being overly dragged out is, is not a good thing. Yeah, I, certainly there have been times when I've, particularly when I've been GMing Call of Cthulhu, uh, less when I'm playing, where it's got to a stage where I realise there is going to be you know, a drawn-out combat because you know the players have engaged with the NPCs or a monster in such a way that it's inevitable, and that I realise it's not necessarily going to have a particularly significant outcome, it's going to take time to resolve, and my heart just sinks. Mm. I remember one instance where we were playtesting a game system that shall remain nameless. Not Call of Cthulhu, though. Um, where a single combat round took, what, 45 minutes to an hour, if I remember right, with the banjos going back and forth of, I bring in this particular thing that will help me with my combat uh, with the combat role, therefore I get a bonus. So certain other person then says, I'm going to add my other thing in. And yeah, it was dueling banjos for 45 minutes. Real <laughs> fucking tedious if you're not in the combat. So maybe to start off with, we should discuss how, how we think combat works in reality and how we think combat works in fiction. Cause, and are the two uh, the same? Yeah, and... I, I really think this is an interesting point. I have played very few role-playing games, particularly very few traditional role-playing games, where the fights in them have felt like they're modelling anything other than the way fights work in a role-playing game. Fight to the death. No other yeah. option. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, but it's... You know, I mean, Real fights are kind of fast, messy blurs of confusion and action and you you don't know what's going on. There's pain, there's exhaustion. Um, You're describing my day job. What's, what's the difference here? <laughs> uh, the amount of blood that you lose at the end of it. Uh, I, I've, I've been in two real fights in my life and, you know, one of them was really bad. Uh, and afterwards, you know, I, I was... Uh, I couldn't really tell what had happened you know the whole thing just went by in a blur of confusion um and as far as the kind of tactical choices that you know you casually make in a role-playing game you know th th those weren't a consideration i mean unless you're trained in fighting you're know, a martial artist or a soldier or something like that and even then you know um you know it, it still presupposes a, a certain ideal set of circumstances. I mean, I, I've certainly heard stories of people tra very highly trained in martial arts who have been jumped, uh, you know, haven't been expecting it, and just got the shit kicked out of them as a result. So from your experience then, Scott, it sounds like you know, when the combat sort of kicked in, you know, when you were in a fight, yeah, your brain just kind of, I don't know, almost like a part of it kind of shut off in, can I say, oh, like panic or... Absolutely. Um, I know the, the two fights were very different things. One was... Uh, me standing up to a bully at school when I was a teenager, uh, and um, you know, I actually ended up hurting him quite badly. Yeah, you know, it was the classic. I saw red. Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't really even thinking at that stage. It was just the animal part of my brain kicked in, and I wanted to hurt him, and I did. Uh, the other time was you know getting jumped by a bunch of um, Neds in Dundee, and you know being badly outnumbered. And you know I don't think I, it even occurred to me to try to get a blow in. I was just pushed down onto the ground and kicked until I was half conscious. Mm. Well, there's a phrase you don't hear every day, Neds. <laughs> yes. In both those cases, there was no part of my brain that was making rational decisions. 
I, and I think in fiction, I again, it depends um, whether you're looking at a story about someone who is experienced in combat and is perhaps slightly more in control of their actions there, or whether it... I, one of the most interesting fight scenes I can remember seeing in a film, and I think we've we've discussed this at great length before, Paul, not not on the podcast, is in the original version of Old Boy. Let's not say the original version, just the Old Boy Scott. <laughs> the only anyway, one. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. The 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 uh, well, do, do you want to describe it, Paul? The uh, the yeah. In fights? fact, I watched it uh, with my daughter the other evening. Who's uh, she's now eighteen, and I thought you know she's old enough to watch Old Boy. She'd been out at work all day, and I said, "What do you want to watch?" And uh, I, I pulled out a few films, including some comedies. Um, but then I said, "You know," she said, "Anything?" So I said, "Oh, let's watch Old Boy." I said, "It's you know, it's, it's a fairly tough watch, but you know, there's some humour in it. Well, kind of black humour." Mm. She was sick at the end of it. <laughs> Wow. But she did say she'd been feeling ill beforehand, um, but she hadn't mentioned that. And I said, well, if you told me that before, I wouldn't have recommended Old Boy. But never mind. Anyway, so <laughs> Old Boy, um, this, um, our crazed protagonist gets a claw hammer, the weapon of choice. And uh, he finds himself in a corridor facing what must be at least a dozen thugs. And the camera pans away and we see the corridor in side view across the, 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 the widescreen picture. So it's a cutaway. And we see our protagonist on the far right and the dozen thugs sort of lined up against him, sort of crowding against him. He pulls out the hammer and they're very hesitant to come forward, but then want to run forward and throw a punch. And maybe um, he'll, Desu will, will sidestep it and hit him with the hammer. And then two or three will come forward. And obviously, they don't want to get hit by a hammer. So they're being really cautious. Uh, but they will throw themselves in because, you know, there's, there's peer pressure and it's their job. Uh, and when he does hit them, they, you know, they fall down holding their head or holding their gut and sort of rolling around on the floor in pain. More and more of them get taken down. And then there's one big fella that's, that's already been partly wounded. And he's kind of coming forwards towards our protagonist. And you can see that he's really kind of, he doesn't want to go and fight him, but he's kind of reluctantly edging back and forth, ducking in and out. And then eventually he does kind of throw himself forward and need to be clubbed down. So Daisu, the, the main character, has got some pretty good fighting skills, but, you know, he comes off pretty badly out of this, mm. but he does manage to fight his way out of it. But, but there are a few things at play there which you don't tend to see in RPG combats. The first is people afraid of getting hurt mm. I, when was the last time you saw a player character in a call of cthulhu fist fight just you know start start stepping into the combat and sort of think oh actually no you know this might hurt a bit and then you know sort of hesitantly throw one punch and then you know step back for a couple of combat rounds because they're, they're worried that they might get hurt well, particularly an NPC as well, I would say. Mm. You know, as an NPC, I tend to just, if it's a fight, I have them, and, you know, we said this in the rules, that NPCs and monsters should most of the time be fighting back, not dodging. Yeah. Because um, fighting back propels the fight forwards more quickly than if they're taking the more passive avoidance role of dodging. So I tend to have them fight back every time. Yeah. So there's that. There's the fact that... They're largely incapacitated. In fact, none of them are killed in this fight. They're all incapacitated through pain. They're not even knocked out. 
you know, someone is hit by a hammer, um, you know, they've perhaps got a fractured arm as a result, or certainly a very nasty contusion, it hurts like hell, and they fall to the ground holding that injured part. Um, and the third thing that you see in this that that I've seen in very few RPGs, and certainly not in Call of Cthulhu, is exhaustion. What he was saying about mm. Desu, you know, being down on the ground, getting his breath back, coming back up. The, you know, certainly in something like Call of Cthulhu, there's nothing that models it. I know in RuneQuest 3, for example, there were exhaustion rules, and, you know, as, as your character got more and more exhausted, it would impact their ability to fight. But then, you know, that became an absolute pain in the ass to keep track of. Mm. I mean, it strikes me that here we're seeing something that we don't see in role-playing games very much either. From the NPC's point of view, there's a motivational thing. Because I think if it was their life or death on the line, you know, to get past the guy with the hammer, maybe they would have tried harder. Um, but they know that, you know, if they fall down, I, I'm kind of reading into it, they know if they fall down and roll about on the ground, he's probably not. he's probably going to leave them alone. So, you know, how strongly is their motivation actually to get up and finish the fight off? whether they could or not. Yeah. In Call of Cthulhu, I suppose you have deranged cultists who may be acting in such a way that their fanatics you know, are willing to fight to the death over what they see their causes are. You have monsters that are acting out of inhuman motivations, and it's perhaps easy because we think of monsters sometimes in D&D terms as thinking that they're things that are, again, just going to fight to the death, forgetting that in Call of Cthulhu they might be quite intelligent Often creatures. as intelligent as humans or more so. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I can see why there are circumstances in Call of Cthulhu why fights would be fight to the de- fights to the death. But in most cases, that actually seems like a pretty bizarre thing. You know, when you go into one of these fights... Yeah, either as an investigator or, or you know, as a keeper playing the NPCs. I suppose one of the questions that you've got to have in your character's mind is, you know, is what I'm doing here worth dying over? And going back to, as we discussed, original role-playing games, D&D, you got your experience points from killing the monster, mm-hmm. not from incapacitating it or knocking it down and running past it. I believe it was from actual, you know, the killing blow. Um, so there's that kind of not that we all necessarily played that but there is that heritage to the game that the combat leads to death see the one instance i had going through my head thinking about literary and also the film adaptation in this instance of different portrayals of combat it works more i'd say more to my taste in the book than it does in the film and that's first blood Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, the uh, David Morrell uh, yeah. book that say gave gave birth to good old Rambo. Yep, John Rambo. Yes. Um, whereas a lot of the initial instances of combat in that film or in in the book is Rambo gets kind of post traumatic stress flashback. He lashes out and then just runs. Yeah. And I remember the the scene mm. in the film where he then grabs a guy by the um, by the neck um, with his knife and just says like Let it go. Um, in an instance like we, you can stop this here, this doesn't have to escalate. But then the rest of the the rest of the story just shows it progressively getting worse and worse and worse. But yeah, I mean that is something that you don't again see much in role playing games. Well, two things there actually that you don't see much in role playing games. One is the effect of fear. I'm sure in Call of Cthulhu you've got the intimidate skill. I mean it's quite low by default. So unless you're playing an intimidating character. 
you might well do something like that, put a knife to someone's throat and sort of say, right, you know, you, do you want this to escalate? But, you, you know, you, you'll get a bonus die for the knife, but you might only have a 15% chance of mm. that working. So, you know, there is a very good chance that it will escalate. In other games, you may have uh, morale checks, for example, for NPCs, which is, is quite a powerful thing. I suppose, gain as a keeper... You, you wouldn't necessarily have to ask for that role in a situation like that. Again, if the if the NPC has got no reason to make this a fight to the death, an investigator has got a knife to their throat and sort of says, you know, do you want to die over this? The answer probably should be no. <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, yet again, though, it seems that NPCs are one-track minded. They will go forward. I, and mm. the other the other thing there is disengagement. Yeah, the idea that most sane people will run away from a fight. You know, whether this is avoiding the fight in the first place or they get punched around a bit and there's a chance to get away from it, particularly if they're losing, you know, why would you hang around? You know what actually sounds a really good idea in this kind of instance? Calling the police? <laughs> <laughs> this guy threatened me! Quick, send in the cops! Yeah. But in what instances would you run away, Scott? I guess very often, you know, if we're talking about self-defence, then running away is an option. And I guess it depends, you know, it's very situation-dependent. Yes. Yeah, I'm thinking more about the NPCs in this case. I mean, let's say you've got a classic situation where the NPCs have got a MacGuffin or a hostage or something that the investigators want. So you get a bunch of heavily tooled-up investigators turning up with their Tommy guns and shotguns and dynamite, and you've got a bunch of cultists you know, armed with whatever weapons they've got. You know, Frank the cultist immediately gets his head blown off by a shotgun. Joe, standing next to him, looks at this and thinks, fuck this for a game of soldiers, and runs. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you know, unless... Unless he thinks that, you know, the MacGuffin or whatever that they're holding on to is, you know, perhaps the one thing that's going to bring their god into the world and is worth dying for as a, a sacrifice, why the hell would he hang around? I'm sure I've done that in one circumstance where I've had a few mooks. Um, probably when I'm running pulp, uh, when, say, I had a few mooks run up to our uh, good old heroes, one of them does just horrendous amounts of damage, probably with a death ray, given my group. <laughs> and just atomizes one of them. The others just turn and look at each other and go, that kind of, no, fuck this, and just run away. Partly because, A, it makes the combat a hell of a lot quicker, and B, it's a funny moment. Yeah. 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 Well, it doesn't even have to be funny. You know, it can be, you know, dramatic, poignant, or, or just <laughs> right. <laughs> if we look at real-world battles... Actually, taking high percentages of losses is, I think, quite unusual. But when we're playing our games, it tends to be you know 100% casualties on one side very often. Mm. Oh, no, yeah. I, I think that's almost the default expectation that you're you're playing to exterminate one side of the the, the, the battle. And I think it's a common thing. Well, coming from D and D, and ex- even extending into Call of Cthulhu, you know, you capture some kind of monster, albeit a goblin or an NPC or whatever, and they're no good. You kind of know they're a baddie. You know, what do you do with them? Do you just kill him in cold blood? Really? I mean, I've seen that happen plenty of times. Some one of the players, the characters, will say one of the players will say, "Well, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kill him." It's like, well, okay. You know, what I'd like to see more happen in that kind of circumstance where you have bad guy versus good guy. Have that moment almost from the uh, the Princess Bride 
of To The Pain, where you have a, a verbal showdown where one side is completely and utterly obliterated, that all their resistance goes and they are completely subdued. That I would like to see. Well, to some extent, you can do that with some of the social skills in Call of Cthulhu. Again, Intimidate is a great one for that. In that, you know, the threat of violence with, you know, particularly if it's backed up by a plausible threat, uh, it can be really quite an effective thing. Something like that where it is verbal word sparring, um, social combat. That would interest me a lot more at the game table rather than going, I'd describe a punch in the face or I swing and kick. I'd, I'd like to see something a bit more engaging, something more yeah, social. If, if I were to turn it around as an incentive and, you, and I said, uh, you know, I've got a suitcase with a million pounds in it and I walk up to the, you know, the guard on the door or whatever it is and say, can we come in? Yeah, I'm going to give you a million pounds. I would kind of think that's probably going to work. He's yeah. probably going to say... Okay, yeah, here you go. I'm buggering off. See ya. Equally, if you've just shot one of his friends and there's three of you pointing the gun at him, he's probably going to back down as well. Yeah. But we don't see that enough, I think. So this isn't really down to rolling dice. I think this is down to the keeper kind of thinking, what would this character really do? You know, this is just, particularly if it's just a hireling, you know, somebody who's been paid to do a job. There's a beautiful moment where someone does that in American Horror Story, where he turns around and says, I will give you a million dollars if you shoot that woman in the face. And, and bang! And enough, it works. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, though, is, you know, I mean, you talk about that not just being a keeper aspect, that, yeah, I mean, it's not unusual for players just to think, right, you know, we can't leave any witnesses or survivors. But, you know, or, just or even much- we just don't want to carry them around with us. Yeah, And... I mean, that, that 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 brings me on to one thing that bugs me an awful lot about role-playing games, which is the, the number of games I've played where player characters, whether they're investigators in Call of Cthulhu or, you know, um, any player character, is fundamentally just a psychopath. I mean, people... I, it's, it's a bit of a truism. People joke about this the whole time, but... It, the number of times, and I've, I've done this myself, I'm not innocent of it, but the number of times I've seen you know, someone play a character who might be a mild-mannered librarian, you know, who has been sucked into this world of weirdness, has faced you know, a strange cult for the first time, there's, there's been a, you know, perhaps a bit of unpleasantness going on, and it's just, oh yeah, okay, well I pull out my gun and shoot him in the head. It's, mm, they are okay. a closet serial killer. Yeah, and... I mean, okay, sometimes, particularly in cold blood, some keepers will ask for a sanity role in order to be able to do that. But, I, again, how many of us would actually be capable of killing another human being in cold blood? Depends who it is. I think that's, yeah, I think the sanity role there is, is a good idea, um, you know, to see if you maybe... I think this was a suggestion from uh, the guys with um, Delta Green, actually, uh, that that if you make the sanity roll, you know, that that you can't actually pull the trigger. Um, As you subjected me to that rule in a recent playtest, if I remember right. Yeah, if we're looking, yeah. if we're looking for two psychopathic um, player characters, <laughs> friends, we need look no further than you two in my <laughs> yeah. game last week, killing a whole house full of uh, 
children and people What's and women who were running the, away. There were mitigating circumstances. Not that much, actually. What? Not as much as you think there were. <laughs> I, I don't see the problem with picking off the kids one by one as they came out of the window. It was a logical thing to do. <laughs> and that is exactly how yes. psychopaths think. <laughs> yes. I think you do tend to... I think that's a, that's a serious point. I think you yeah. do tend to play the game like a psychopath because expediency it's the easiest way to win yeah well it's, um, it's not just expediency it's also freedom from consequences i mean the, this is a bit like you know the way that your fi- your character will fight without fear of pain mm. because you as a player are not feeling the pain and similarly you as the player are not feeling the psychological fallout of the actions your character is taking I mean, you can describe you pulling your gun out and shooting the child in the head because it's an expedient thing to do if you as a person did that i'd like to think that it would probably break something fairly major inside you and i guess in the game in that instance to mirror that we should be hitting them with fairly significant sanity rolls I think so. I, I think that's fair. I, obviously, you know, there are things like experience packages that you can have that will make your character inured to certain actions, like the organised mm. crime one. You know, maybe you have killed a certain number of people in cold blood. Uh, you've already taken the sanity hit for that and you're used to it. But, yeah, I, I think an ordinary person who did, uh, you know, a horrific action like that, yeah, you know, obviously it's, you know, it's not something that's going to affect everyone. And, God knows, you know, world history has shown us that, you know, under certain circumstances, ordinary people can do really horrific things. Well, can do horrific things. And I'm sure it's difficult to talk about this in in general terms. But, you know, these people have been driven to do these things or have ultimately chosen to do these things. But, you know, all the same, does it have a, you know, a toll on them? I was saying, wasn't it Stalin who said after a while it becomes a statistic? Or was uh, yeah, that effect? It, yeah, it was. It if you kill one person, it's a tragedy. If you kill ten thousand people, it's a statistic. Yeah. Um, there's a documentary I keep meaning to watch that's been recommended to me so many times, uh, called "The Act of Killing," uh, which is a, interviews with people who were involved with the genocide in East Timor, and. I, apparently one of the more chilling aspects is, you know, that, I, like I say, I've not seen it, so, you know, if you have and I'm wrong, please, you know, do correct me. Apparently one of the more chilling aspects is the number of the people who were involved who actually seem quite blasé about it, you can, can sort of joke about it now. And kind of reenact role play through what they did, I believe. Yeah. If it's the one I'm thinking of. As a counterpoint to what I was saying in the previous segment... Sometimes I also think that combat can diminish horror. Uh, let's say, for example, you know, the classic situation of, you know, you hear strange noises in uh, the house. You know, you, you're in this house by the sea. You, you, you find a secret room down in the cellar that goes into the sea caves and you turn around the corner and, all deep ones. You know, uh, happily, you know, you were expecting this. You pull out your shotgun and you just start blasting away. Okay. So where's the horror in that? Well, if you're actually dispatching them and you find you are killing them, then you are overcoming the horror. You're you're beating it, so that's that's quite heartening. And yes, and that's wrong. certainly and wrong. And it and it um you know it, it dispels the sense of horror. But you know if dreadful things start to happen, if you just start blowing chunks out of this thing, but it doesn't slow it down, yeah, or some such thing as that, then you know it depends on the monster i think yeah um so that's 
down to, in part to scenario design and monster design? But certainly, you know, I've been in, in uh, games before. I, For example, I remember, you know, the climax of a campaign you ran some time back, Paul. I, I, won't, I won't give the details of the name of the campaign, but, you know, it finished up with someone, you know, in classic Call of Cthulhu style, doing a ritual to become uh, an avatar of his god. And he was starting to change and transform as this was going on, becoming bigger, more powerful. My character was a fairly crack shot with a rifle. Uh, I pulled out my rifle um, and got a really good roll on the first result, you know, something like 0-5 impale, and did a massive amount of damage. And he carried on transforming. I thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm in a bit of trouble here. Next round, I get another good roll, another impale, just blow his head off. And it's like, you know, this is the big climactic, horrific bit of the campaign. You know, two shots with the rifle. There's a corpse in the snow. Yay me. <laughs> Yeah, there was the phrase in the Call of Cthulhu rules about if guns come out, something's gone wrong for your player characters. I think we took that out. Um, because given the nature of the, the statistics for quite a few of the monsters, actually, guns were a pretty damn good choice. Yeah, and if, um, and if not guns, dynamite. Yeah, well, you know, some sort of physical weapon. Yeah, I think if you want to instill horror, then it comes down to two things really i think what i mentioned about scenario design and about your kind of choice of monsters or customizing monsters changing monsters uh, and sometimes it's cool to have those kind of combat things where you can defeat them uh, uh, but equally sometimes it's not and actually that makes for a very good seg to our next segment how do we make combat more interesting my my single short answer to this you don't. <laughs> so, Matt, you're not a fan of combat. Does it show? <laughs> so, what? I mean, you. What is it you don't like about combat? Is it the fact that it's drawn out? It tends to be drawn out, and you know, uh, just a lot of repetitive actions. Yeah, it's it's a lot of back and forth, and specifically if you've got a number of players in the game, that it's waiting your turn and waiting. And doing nothing. So not as a player, yeah. As a, as a player, I get really bored, really, really, really bored when combat starts. I remember one particular system, again, that shall rename nameless. That once it started, and I did my initiative roll and found myself at the bottom of a round in a six-player game. I knew that I had at least half an hour before I was going to even pick up the dice again. So well, I that's went dreadfully I'd, slow, isn't it? Yeah. So I got up from the table and said, "Right, I'll see you in a bit. I'm going to go make, um, put on a kettle, put on the kettle." Because there was nothing I could do in that time. Yeah, that, that does sound pretty dull. I think once you've established an initiative cycle or you're just going around the table, it, it should move fairly quickly. There's no excuse for... So, some systems do not move quick. Yeah. They're like the wheels of bureaucracy. They yeah. grind, they squeal, and they hardly move. Well, I can see that's going to be dull. Yeah. The thing for me in particular is, as I said, that I don't like combat being drawn out is it has to be something that involves everyone. You don't want a player sat at the table kind of twiddling their thumbs, watching a percentage of the rest of the table having fun while you're just sat there going, waiting for my turn, waiting for my turn. Have something engaging for everyone to do at the same time. Have action resolve simultaneously, perhaps. But for God's sake, don't have people just sat there wait, waiting. And I think if you are running a combat scene, something you can do, if, you know, if, uh, if you've got six players and four of them are in combat in, you know, in, the, in the old house on the hill and two of them are still down in the library in town, then you know, cut between them. Don't just run the combat for half an hour, whatever it is. 
have a bit of combat and then hold it at a, a, a key point just as, as the cultist's about to stab him in the back or something and cut back to Joe in the library and just have a few going minutes up, yeah. with them. Going up to the library and saying, sorry, I still can't find this book on ancient Roman history. Where did you say you put it? <laughs> or even better, you know, maybe they find some book that tells us about these, uh, these things up at the house, try and interlace it and make it interesting. Mm-hmm. Personally, one thing that I like doing in combat to try to spice things up is just narrate things in a particularly visceral or action-packed manner, depending on the game. Um, you know, if if the characters are involved in a fight and um, you know people are getting hurt, I don't like it when it's just you know it takes six hit points damage. You know, if that's happening, you know, I want to see the blood fly. I want to see someone getting maimed, losing an eye, something like that, and. I find that this makes it much more memorable for the players as well. You know, if um, you know if their character uh, is shot, that's fine. If they get you know shot in the arm and they get to see a chunk of meat come out and there's blood spilling down and soaking into their shirt and you know they're beginning to see spots in front of their eyes, that makes it a, a slightly more horrific experience. When you are attacked in Call of Cthulhu, you, you confront the player with two options. Are you dodging or are you fighting back? I don't tend to ask that. I tend to ask, what are you doing? So, uh, so Matt, the guy's coming at you with a broken bottle. He's going to shove it in your face. What are you, what's your character doing? Stepping to one side. <laughs> <laughs> Stepping to one side is a bit of an in-joke with us. Um, it's, uh, yeah, well, I, don't, I can't remember where that came that, from. That was but. our friend Mark during a dredge, the first book of Pandemonium game, where you're encouraged to describe what your characters are doing in very vivid ways to get bonus dice. And everyone was talking about their characters sort of jumping through the air, slashing katanas around, letting off vile magic, uh, blowing their opponent's heads off with shotguns at close range. And it gets around to Mark and it's right, you know, there's the, the demons lurching at you, you know, there's, there's tentacles with mouths on the end, it's you know, black slime dripping down on you, it's about to eat your face off. What do you do? I step to one side. <laughs> <laughs> but did he win the role? Yes. yes. <laughs> there you go. Yes, he fucking did. <laughs> it works. <laughs> so, you know, I, I try to get from the player a reaction. You know, either they're dodging out of the way, you know, they say I'm ducking down out of the way, I'm, I'm stepping back. And I try to, from what they're saying, I try to glean, are they trying to dodge away and avoid the attack or you know i put it to them you know you could sort of try and um step to the side and and and, um punch him in the gut or something as he comes at you you could try and grab his arm you know things like that so i try to to gather what their intent is and then say okay that sounds like you're fighting back or okay that sounds like you're dodging roll dodge or roll um brawl uh, fighting brawl so I try to avoid the player just saying, I'm hitting them, I'm dodging. I try to, you know, ask for a bit more description and then try and react to that in what the their opponent does. Another thing I like doing is sort of relating to what I was saying a bit earlier about narrating um, you know, the, the effects of violence is having consequences for taking some of that damage as well. We played a game recently where someone was set on fire and assumed that their character would be blinded as a result. The keeper decided that he wasn't. But, you know, that that did actually occur to me as being, you know, potentially an interesting thing that, you know, his character might have been at least temporarily blinded by by that. Um 
another game, for example, that I was running just this weekend, um, someone was caught in a collapsing building uh, there. Um, their, their character ended up being pinned under a bit of furniture that just crushed their leg. I mean, they they took enough damage that they had a major wound, so I felt you know justified in in saying this. But you know, there's no mechanics in the game that said right. You know, that obviously this is going to affect your mobility. But you know, I just told the player outright, okay, you know, even once this is off, your your leg is a crushed ruin at the moment. You you are not going to be able to get around under your own steam. And so you know, he ended up having to be helped around for it by the rest of the characters. You know, being hit by a Molotov cocktail in, as it happened in a game for me last week. You get an extreme success with one of those things, you can kill a god in four rounds. And it did. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> they don't make gods like they used to. Nah. Now, since we've got rid of the divisions of fist and headbutt and kick and whatever else there was and kind of amalgamated them into, into the one skill, I'd also advocate using that one skill of fighting brawl for other things such as, you know, um, pushing the guy's head against the wall, um, you know, hitting them with the door, um, you know, things like that. If you're using, I think if you're, I think if you're picking up a chair and hitting them with it, that's that's different. But if you're just, you know, using your own person, your own hand or, or whatever to to, uh, to to bounce somebody off a wall, particularly in, in a, you know, if we had a fight in here... Christ would be bashing into the, it's mm. what a sort of four meter square room, something like that. And there's three of us, and there's a table, there's mic stands, there's a wardrobe, there's a guitar, there's there's various things around. There's cables. We'd we'd we wouldn't be stood up for long, or, or no. all of us wouldn't be stood up for for, for long at all. Uh, you know, we'd be banging our heads. We'd probably be accidentally sticking your hand out the window and cutting yourself on glass. You'd be smashing your head against the mirror. You'd be falling over the table. Um, there's all sorts of things, but I think in a role-playing game, we probably wouldn't incorporate a lot of that. It'd be, I punch you, you dodge, I kick you. you know. So try to use the environment more. I can think we did one instance of that, which led to a particular keyword that you used to give my character when we were playtesting oh, Horror on that? the Express. It's like, you, defenestrate! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That should be a skill on the character sheet, Matt. It was really good because, again, you eliminate a combat against a really hard NPC really quickly if you push him out of the window of a moving character. Oh, especially if it's a train. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. But, I mean, so that that's there's, there's two things you've got here that you can use in the Call of Cthulhu rules. One is, you know, you can narrate your uh, fighting brawl skill as using anything in the environment... And your default damage will be the standard 1d3 damage plus your damage bonus. So rather than saying, oh, I punch him, you can say, okay, I shove him back and hit his head against the wall. Um, you know, I shut his head in the door, anything like that. It, it, all it does is add a bit of colour, but that's exactly what it does. Um, and your other option, of course, is as Keeper, when they say what they're doing, does it sound like they're actually trying to cause damage? If they're trying to maybe mm. push them out the window... The intent there isn't, well, ultimately is perhaps cause damage, but that's almost a side effect or pushing down the stairs. So that becomes a combat manoeuvre. Yeah, or even better, are they just trying to, you know, incapacitate them or, or pin them down or something like that? Again, you know, we, we get so focused on inflicting damage here that if the goal is actually just to incapacitate the opponent, then you're probably a lot better off just putting them in a wrist lock. Yeah, yeah, or pushing them out the door and shutting it, you know, keep locking them in the cupboard or yeah. 
um, all manner of things, you know, holding them while your mate ties them up. You know, these things aren't really used enough. So, so that, that combat manoeuvre there is really there for, as a catch-all for anything that the players want to do that isn't, or, or the NPCs want to do, that isn't just about inflicting damage. There's, there's a goal there and you're trying to achieve something. So I would strongly recommend trying to make more use of that because ultimately it's kind of more interesting often. Going back to something we said in the last segment as well, um, where we were talking about the effects of people being incapacitated through pain. Now, while there aren't any specific rules in Call of Cthulhu for that, I, one thing that did occur to me is you do have you know, people rolling to see whether they're knocked out after taking major wounds or, or you know, there are knockout blows in this as well. I don't always interpret that as being knocked cold unconscious. Sometimes yeah. I say, oh, yeah, you've, you've hit them. They fail, they con roll, you know, they're just rolling around holding their gut. I guess like the characters in Old Boy, exactly. many of them have been incapacitated because, yeah, they took some damage and failed to roll their con constitution. And, and that's actually much more realistic because knocking someone out is actually A, very difficult and B, very dangerous. Um, you know, it, it, Generally, if you knock someone out, you're knocking them out for a few seconds. Uh, if you're knocking them out for longer than that, what you're doing is putting them into a coma. And indeed, you know, if, if you've been, um, if you've had a head injury, that's something I'll ask. Were you knocked unconscious? Because yeah. if you are, that's a lot more serious and, you know, they're going to want to um, investigate that more. If yeah. you stayed conscious, not so bad. Yeah, I've been knocked un unconscious once and it's a very weird experience. Well, you've got no idea how much time has passed. Um, but, you know, in this case, I was playing football at school as a teenager, and we were playing with uh, goals painted on a concrete wall. And I was in goal, and I bent over to pick up the ball, and someone had run in to try to kick it, had Ooh. misjudged, you know, bounced into my back and sent me flying headfirst into the concrete. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it, it was sort of classic, I did see stars. Everything went black. And, you know, some indeterminate time later, which, you know, turned out to be about three or four seconds, you know, I was there sort of groaning, coming around on the ground, trying not to vomit, blood streaming down my face, having, you know, no idea what had just happened. It really sounds to me like there should be something here whereby when your character, when they first get into combat, they should probably make a sanity roll, um, particularly if guns are fired at them. I mean, I have seen other games that kind of reflect this, that the yeah. first time you're in under fire, it, there is a requirement for a, a some kind of like, you know, stability type, mental stability type role to see if you actually keep your stuff together. Because if you don't, you know, you just, it's just a flight fight, uh, well, more of a, a panic um, mechanic that you just, you know, duck down or, or run or, or whatever. And, you know, we've seen plenty of images on the news recently of gunfire and people just fleeing quite sensibly. Of course, the flip side to that, and this is maybe something we'll touch on in the next segment as well, is we're not just trying to model reality here, though. We are also trying to play a game. And the game has got to be entertaining for the players. And 
I, for example, you know, one of the games that I've played that models something a bit like that, it's not so much when you enter into combat, but certain circumstances that may discombobulate you during the course of the fight, is Savage Worlds, with its notorious shaken rule. Oh, yes. So, you know, circumstances may come up where your character is shaken. Now, this can be like a sanity loss, or it can be some form of combat fatigue, or fright, or, um, you know, something, something that stops them from acting. And you've got to try to snap yourself out of this. And this involves passing a spirit role, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, Savage Worlds describes itself as being fast and furious. I mean, it's fast and furious compared to 4th edition D&D, but it's not exactly blisteringly fast. And um, so if you've got six players in there... What that tends to mean is your character is shaken, so you try to make your roll, you fail to get... Well, actually, no, first time, you don't even get the roll. So you're shaken, so you lose your action that turn. Then it goes around and you get five other players, plus the GM, who all do their stuff. So it might be 15, 20 minutes before it gets back to you. Then you you make your, your roll to come out of being shaken... It's actually quite a difficult role to make. You've, you've, you fail. So then you go around, you spend another 10, 15 minutes watching everyone have fun. Then it comes back around to you. Maybe you fail again and do that. Or maybe this time you make it. So correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't play a lot of Savage Worlds. Mm-hmm. Then that means that round you've come out of it, but you still don't get to take an action. Yes and no. It depends on how well you make the roll. Right. But it's also that rule has been thankfully errated by our good friends over at um, over at Pinnacle. It used to be that on a single, on basically on a pass, rolling a four or more on your spirit die, that was to remove your shaking counter. But you couldn't act. You right. needed to get a raise on top of that, so pass by another four to then act in the same turn. Whereas the errata for that rule is now, you just pass. You can then get rid of the shaking counter and act. You don't need the raise anymore. But, but I mean, the point is that in some respects, you know, for some of the things we've been talking about with being frightened or in pain or whatever, that's actually a comparatively realistic thing. You know, it addresses some of the things that I, yeah. I, you know, I said were a problem or unrealistic about the way role-playing games address combat. Is it fun? No, it's fucking not. I think we have to be very wary of trying to be realistic in role-playing games. I think, you know, this is something we addressed in, when we were, we were writing the rules. And I really didn't want to have to put penalties on people um so you can be down to one hit point and you can still act the same as you were when you were on full hit points i think because because as you just described as it goes around you know there's a group of six people say you only get like one in six goes if you do lose your action or, you know, you're suddenly at a massive penalty because you've had some injuries, yeah, that's kind of realistic. But at the same time, it's like, well, I was pretty ineffectual to start with and now it's hardly worth me rolling. And it's just, as a player, it's just a bit like, oh, it's a bit depressing. And it's also the bookkeeping that goes with that. I mean, if you start trying to track things like exhaustion and blood loss, both of which are, you know, huge factors in, in fights, mm. Then the bookkeeping, you know, either for the players or the GM of trying to keep track of all that, yeah, yeah. More, more stats and so on, for what should be a fairly simple game like Call of Cthulhu, then ends up turning it into something else, uh, turning it into a much more mechanical, uh, slow, unfun thing. So we've got, you know, a few outcomes. Either, you know, you take some damage and, yes, you've been kind of eroded a bit, but 
you know, the impact is negligible on your action or, or none at all, actually. You can act just as you were. Um, or you take quite a lot of damage, you know, a major wound, and there's a chance you're knocked out, incapacitated, knocked unconscious, whatever, as we said. Or you take, you know, equal to all your hit points in one go and you're dead outright. And that, you know, cut into one of those three outcomes seems simple and, you know, enough to me to to add some different types of outcomes in the game. I think, yeah. and it doesn't require too much bookkeeping, hopefully. Um, there's also the argument, you know, there's people who get into fights and they take wounds and so on that because the fight doesn't last long, they carry on fighting and they don't notice that, you know, they've been stabbed or cut um, or, you know, or perhaps even shot, I don't know. But, um, you know, they, they don't notice these things. Obviously, they're not such major wounds, but they, they can have quite a lot of um, well, life-threatening they, they, wounds. They, yeah, I mean, they can be. I mean, yeah, adrenaline is but a not immediate. Thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it can turn out to be a fatal wound from blood loss later on, but they might not even notice it immediately. It's that line from Predator. Ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- th- there are a few... A few different ways in which I think you can make that aspect of things interesting. One is having monsters, as we touched upon briefly earlier, that are either very hard to hurt or completely immune to physical damage. I I, I think a classic in this respect is the Hound of Tindalos. I was just going to say the Hounds are your friends. Yeah, uh, because I mean, yeah, the, the Hound of Tindalos... It, it almost reminds me, you know, in some respects, of the monster from It Follows, in that you know it's this I've relentless. All so oh, right, give me spoilers for that. Scott. But no, but I mean, but this this isn't a huge spoiler. Okay. Just this relentless thing that will just follow you until you're dead. Um, and yeah, I mean that that is quite a terrifying thing. And then it makes you know any scenario that involves one less about you know, just tooling up with the right weaponry to take it down. Um, more about, you know, trying to find cunning ways of surviving it. Um, yeah, it becomes an exercise in ingenuity rather than just, you know, mechanistic, what's the biggest gun I can get? Yeah, a similar vein to that is why you'd like to use serv- um, Servitors of the Outer Gods, because they have a similar um, imperviousness to physical attacks. But they're not so much of a combat threat but they, I see them more as a problem to be solved. It's There's obviously a problem here. What the hell do we do to get rid of it? Because yeah. while it's around here, it's driving us mad. So the three of us worked on the collection of scenarios called Nameless Horrors, which came out as part of the 7th Ed Kickstarter. And part of our remit for that was, as the title says, Nameless Horrors. So they weren't creatures from the Lovecraftian bestiary particularly, or, you know, from the Call of Cthulhu game. They were new things that we we developed. And also part of our sort of personal remit for that was to try to create scenarios where, not that they excluded combat, but that where combat wouldn't um, necessarily resolve the scenario. Yeah, combat couldn't be used as a be-all and end-all answer to it. Well, it's, it was, I don't think it was even that so much as there was no dependence or no expectation of combat. I, I think with a couple of them, you probably could engineer some kind of violent outcome. <laughs> there's going to be violence in mine. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, there's more than one instance where I can think of it ending up at an artist studio and someone brings out the sledgehammer. Yeah, but I, I, I don't think in any of them that those are the only ways of resolving them. And I think, you know, in a lot of respects, it's probably the worst way of resolving them. 
Well, I think it's that violence can be involved, but it's not necessarily a way of resolving them. Yeah. 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 And one other, you know, last trick I like using sometimes, um, again, you know, just to sort of try to discourage violence as the, the catch-all solution, is to use uh, sympathetic villains or, you know, people that the, uh, the, the, the player characters might actually care about or are under some kind of influence, you know, some kind of innocence who have been drawn into this, and it's sort of, you know, is, is what I'm doing actually worth hurting or killing these people? Now, again, going back to the idea that you know, player characters do tend to be psychopaths, uh, I have tried using this and have it backfire horribly before. I can think of one exchange. It wasn't in the Call of Cthulhu game, but it, it was a Dread the First Book of Pandemonium game. And I mean, without giving the context, the exchange between me and the player went like this. The little girl comes at you with her lollipop. I shoot her in the face with my shotgun. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Uh, I, I did have a... How a much moment. XP do I get, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> you get, double if, you, you get uh-huh. double if you take a teddy bear out too. Oh, poor little thing. I mean, the teddy bear. <laughs> I, I did have a similar moment where it's um, having an antagonist that they... Well, in the, in the game, they didn't actually realise that she was an antagonist per se. But it ended up with a confrontation on top of a suspension bridge where one of the characters uh, ended up grappling uh, one of the other members of the cult, throwing them, both of them, off the bridge. Um, Matt Nottle loved, uh, loved me mention the fact he lost 94 sand in the process. Uh, <laughs> as he went, uh, as he fell off the bridge and then everyone else just watched him vanish, uh, one of the other members of the party went a bit crazy and shot another one of the group in the face and left just this one poor member of this cult that they thought, actually, these guys were trying to do something good for humanity, and we've just killed two-thirds of the group. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and you're seeing this poor, broken woman thinking, that's it, this is the end, humanity's doomed. And putting them on a real guilt trip for the rest of the, <laughs> the, rest of the campaign. Fantastic. <laughs> Another thing there is something we talked about in the pulp versus kind of purist idea is that in pulp, characters tend to be black and white. They tend to be evil, baddies, or goodies. And, the, you know, obviously you can beat up the baddies and, uh, you know, save the goodies. In a Call of Cthulhu, a regular Call of Cthulhu game, things should be more ambiguous, I think. Mm. And when you're presented with characters and NPCs, and you don't really know who the goodies and the baddies are, or indeed, you know, there aren't really goodies and baddies, um, that makes it a lot less um, easy to fall back on, on violence, I think. And, and certainly as well, if you look at the actions dispassionately of most investigators, they don't come across as being the heroes. And I, I think, you know, joking aside, if you're running a game where there are consequences for these actions, then that becomes a, a fairly major factor. I mean, the realistically from you know the most call of cthulhu games i've seen most investigators deserve to spend the rest of their lives in prison yeah you don't see me and paul just nodding along to this (laughs) and now it's time for ask jackson 
Now, as we've explained in previous episodes, we are the earthly vessels of Jackson Elias. We are in touch with him there in the great hereafter, and he does emanate. He emanates all over us. Especially in this heat, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, if our listeners have any questions that can only be answered by the shining wisdom of Jackson Elias, then please do send them to us via social media or email or... Uh, by sending them to us as as psychic broadcasts. And um, we will conduct the appropriate rites and ask Jackson. And this week, our message comes from a mutual friend, uh, from Anthony Lee Dudley, from his friend, Lord Entwistle Tabak III. He's got a long name already. I like like this guy. Anything with a hyphen, (laughs) it's always... Or double-barreled is always good. A bit like a shotgun, double-barreled. Our message reads... Sir, I recently had the misfortune to visit a small seaside town, filled, it would seem, to this gentleman's eye, with locals of the most degenerate and fragrant nature. So, Dundee. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> land so, of discovery, so, isn't it? What they say? City of discoveries. Sorry, Ollie. <laughs> Whilst my man was once more procuring sufficient gasoline for my automobile, they also make great Molotov cocktails. I braced myself and entered a nearby hostelry with the intention of making free with their meagre facilities. I shall not speak of the terrible things that assaulted my senses of righteousness in that dank hellhole. Suffice to say, I, a veteran of the Great War, was left reeling. Needless to say, I lay about myself with abandon until my man stepped in and struck one of those things about the head with a spittoon, leaving me shocked to my core. A spittoon is not the weapon of a gentleman's gentleman! I'd found myself wondering if, in polite company, there is an appropriate weapon for dealing with certain unusual types. Much like a fish fork should only be used with fish. I appreciate your att- your attention in this matter. Yours, etc. Lord Entwistle Tobacco the Third. I'm a bit disturbed by the use of the spittoon as a weapon. I thought you were going to say fish, but... <laughs> I'm always disturbed by that. But, I mean, I, do you really want to go picking up spittoons... Particularly in such a town. Yeah, it's a fishy town. Yeah, because it's probably not going to be spit in those. Or at least, even if it is, they haven't been chewing tobacco. Mm. That sounds pretty gross already. But yes, what other weapons might be appropriate for uh, Mythos Beasties or adversaries of any kind? Well, I think if something's got a particularly notably slimy skin like these entities do... One should never rule out the obvious recourse of salt or maybe even slug ah, pellets. Yeah. I mean, you know, pockets full of those, you know, just throw a few handfuls around with abandon. And I imagine some of these entities will just shrivel up, leaving pools of foul liquid behind. Or maybe yeah. that's just the spittoon being knocked over. <laughs> and of course, there's the, uh, the rat poison of Brown Jenkin. Oh, oh yes. poor little fella. He gets all the hard press. A rat with a human face. <laughs> <laughs> You see, there's me thinking whenever I walk past these uh, red weaponry that they have discreetly hidden in the corners of various office and pub- uh, office blocks and public buildings. Why, why they take out the word vampire from fire vampire extinguisher, I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, there, it's there on the canister. I did see this marvellous thing online the other day for extinguishing fires very rapidly. It was some sort of explosive device uh, that, that sort of um, explodes with a, a cloud of, um, of uh, dust. 
and it just i think the it was it was kind of on a, on a quick youtube thing on facebook and i thought that looks cool but you know i didn't really uh you, stop to glean any real facts from it you weren't just looking at bomb making websites it might people. have been you know <laughs> scott yeah yeah you, you are also on gchq's watch list now <laughs> But yes, yes, I'm sure improvised bombs can, can you probably do a fair amount in this respect. But obviously you need to find this, the right eldritch ingredients with which to, to pack them. Like the powder uh, of Ibn Garzan. Or, or nails. <laughs> eldritch nails. I'm sure if Frank you have can help three, us out with them. Three eldritch nails. <laughs> uh, with their, uh, what's the word? I, um, non-Euclidean curves. <laughs> I, actually, I, I think that's the answer. Forget weapons. Just send, send Frank round to bend them in half. <laughs> like, I don't think there's a mythos beastie that could stand up to his hands. <laughs> What's, was that gug a problem? Nah. <laughs> you mean that U-shaped gug? Yeah. <laughs> you know, also great, uh, a great weapon or something to fend off creatures? Marmite. Because I'm sh- I swear even a Shoggoth would run away from that stuff. But it's nice. Then you are the one that's going to be the dead man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm now wondering about smearing some shockathon toast. I imagine that might be quite tasty. Yeah, it screams as you eat Te- it. Techly-licious. Oh. <laughs> and finally, to wrap things up, what are our final thoughts on combat in Call of Cthulhu? I swing. I hit you. I do 1d3. <laughs> plus damage bonus, Matt. Plus damage. Me bonus. having a damage bonus. All that shit's going in pow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I quite enjoy combat um, generally, but I think you know you. It, it, a lot of it comes down to the person running the game. I think. I think this does come down quite yeah. quite a lot to the the person running the game, whatever the game is, to keep the the tempo up and keep the action up and also to uh, to manage the the combat you know to to give it a structure and to make sure everybody gets a fair kind of turn in in the uh, in the action you know as a player uh, not so much as a player character but as a player that everybody gets an equal turn and that those turns move around reasonably quickly and that if it does feel like it's becoming drawn out for whatever reason, you know, find a way to, you know, um, uh, speed things up a little. I mean, I was running a, a con game on Sunday. We were against time pressure, and I could feel like if this was just a regular game, I'd let this run a bit. But I, I sort of came to the point of, should we just say, should we just condense this into one role um, and just sort of say whoever gets the better here actually gets the better of their opponent and, you know, sort of setting a stake like that and just letting that, you know, um, because we were pushed for time. Yeah, I think for me, what matters as much as anything else is making sure that fight means something, that there is something at stake, and it's not just there because, well, it's a role-playing game and you have fights in role-playing games. I Yeah, I, I want it to be not just, you know, some... Something that, you know, is there as, you know, maybe even just us getting the MacGuffin or, you know, stopping some big ritual from happening. Generally, you know, the best fights for me are ones where there is something that my character genuinely cares about that's on the line. You know, it's, it's that desperate fight for survival or, you know, that fight to save something or someone he really loves. Um, but, you know, 
if it's just, you know, there's a bunch of deep ones, I've got a shotgun, let's go deep one skeet shooting, then no, fuck that noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, it's keep it short, keep it sweet. And by when, when I say sweet, keep the description bloody, visceral, horrific, enough to put the players off, uh, the players off doing it again in the next round. Done. <laughs> Okay, well, that wraps it up. So it's a, uh, a headbutt in the face. Good night from me. It's a blood splattered cheerio from me. And it's a shotgun to the face. Go ahead, farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.